Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey guys, welcome back to E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where I get to interview some of the most interesting pioneers in the world of entrepreneurship. And today is my talk with Indochino's leader, CEO, Drew Green. Drew's had an impressive career as both an entrepreneur, as founder of Shop.ca, Canada's first multi-channel marketplace, and now as C-suite executive of Indochino, one of the fastest growing apparel brands in the world. Drew has been quoted in more than a thousand news outlets, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Globe and Mail, Forbes, Bloomberg, the list goes on. In this episode, we get into all kinds of good stuff, including Drew's love of sports and goal setting, the importance of people in any good business, and how his modest personal upbringing has shaped the leader he is today. Drew did this episode from his cell phone, so please bear with the audio because it's really worth the listen. So let's get to it. My conversation with Indochino's Drew Green. So, Drew, welcome. It's so great to speak to you. Uh, we're, we're both Toron- originally from Toronto. I know that we have that in common. I want to talk to you uh, about Indochino and what you guys are doing now, but I want to go back to your entrepreneurial days first when you founded Shop.ca, which uh, was Canada's first multi-merchant marketplace, subsequently sold. Um, I think what's kind of unique about your profile is that you've got experience now running a company as a founder, but also uh, now as a as a CEO. So how did you decide that this, you know, on the CEO role now versus say doing another startup or doing something more entrepreneurial again? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a good question. I, I think I've, you know, I kind of look at myself as always being an entrepreneur. It's just that it's taken different forms. And I think that, you know, the sort of stereotype or the the mold that everybody thinks about when they think about an entrepreneur is somebody that you know, goes out and, and creates something from, you know, from scratch or from a, from an idea or a vision. But, you know, in reality, there's, you know, millions and millions and millions of entrepreneurs that didn't necessarily start a company, but they're working in a role that, you know, uh, I would describe them as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I think one of the, the biggest things that comes along with being an entrepreneur is, you know, the ability to take, and manage and live with the risks associated with with whatever you're you're choosing to do. And so, you know, if you if I kind of look back to my sort of 20 years in business, you know, that's always been a constant. Whether it was you know the first company I started in university and and subsequently sold, you know, my days working in in retail software, 
and selling to DoubleClick to my days of working at DoubleClick. You know, I really always considered myself an entrepreneur and, you know, the, the joy I had of starting, you know, what was, what became Canada's first marketplace, um, you know, was, was a, a, was an entirely different experience than, you know, growing and, and managing into Chino, but, but in a lot of ways, very, very similar. That's interesting. So tell me about that transition. What's been the biggest surprise for you now that you're, uh, in that CEO role with Indochino? Uh, versus those that twenty year history that you mentioned. Yeah, I, well, I think the, the the commonalities is when I came in, you know, the company really needed to be reshaped. So it was, you know, while there was a base of customers, um, you know, that frankly were uh, about sixty five to sixty six percent less customers than we have now. Um, the company was, you know, was was in a situation where it needed to raise capital. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, growth growth had stalled for you know, approximately three years, you know, was losing quite a bit of money. And in a lot of ways, frankly, that's a lot riskier than, you know, starting from something from scratch and growing OPEX and and expenses in a business, um, you know, towards profitability. We, we kind of inherited a business, my partners and I, you know, that's, that was losing, you know, a significant amount of money each month. And so, you know, I think it would have taken a sort of a special type of entrepreneur to come into this opportunity and really deal with the risk <laughs> mm-hmm. and and get through it. And so I think a lot of the things that I learned in, in other in other journeys that I had, you know, throughout my my business career has kind of helped us really transform this business. You know, we've we'll have quadrupled the revenue uh, base of the company in under three years. We uh, have dramatically improved the unit economics gross margin and really created a, a sustainable model. Um, and all of that's happened in a, in a very short amount of time, like I said, under three years. Yeah. So, so congratulations on that. And it's, it's interesting because when I became a customer, um, I, I, I've been buying Indochino dress shirts for probably the better part of four years. You know, what attracted me to the model initially was never having to leave my house and just having the ability to measure my my body, have something custom delivered to my door and never having to worry about again. And if I wanted to reorder, I could. Now that you, now that you've taken over the role and you've expanded into showrooms, what was the I guess the question I want to ask is what was the rationale for creating the in-store experience, giving the possible operational strain on uh, resources? You, you kind of said it right. Like you're, you're a customer that you know, we really aspired to serve uh, from an online, you know, only perspective. But what we what we really knew was that there was this, you know, whole group of customers that probably weren't going to, you know, purchase a, a, a four or $500 uh, garment for the first time online. They, you know, they were going to want to feel the fabric and go through the experience of creating their own garment. And so retail really provided us that. I think, you know, Frankly, when we first launched retail, uh, we made a ton of mistakes, right? I, everything from, you know, sort of how we were staffing to locations all the way across the board. But what we got out of that was just this huge sort of, you know, huge amount of data and huge amount of insights in terms of how we could transform retail. You know, I think not only for our business, but I think we've been we've been mirrored in many instances as, as new retailers have come to market. And you know, if you think about some of the differences in our approach to retail, we're, we're virtual inventory number one. Mm-hmm. So when I open a showroom, you know, I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of investment to make in inventory. Um, you know, I really, I really operate, you know, 
inventory free. And so that's a really efficient part of our, our model. Um, we also decided to focus on appointment-based selling. So, you know, that, that was born out of the idea that we could really leverage our ability to drive, you know, consumer behavior through digital media and other forms of media and do that for retail. And so, you know, we're not reliant on walk-in traffic like like 95% of retailers mm-hmm. or more than 95%. You know, we really determine the success of our showrooms. And frankly, you know, a lot of cases become destinations. You know, walk-in traffic to us is really, you know, an amazing gift, but it's not something we rely on, you know, to grow our showrooms profitably or to grow the business profitably. And then the last thing I'd say is that you know, probably the biggest part of our success and transforming into what is now the largest custom apparel company in the world is, is really, you know, this belief that retail had become too transactional mm-hmm. um, and that it really needed to get back to providing an experience or quote unquote selling an experience. And the showrooms do that for us, right? We're able to interact with a customer in a way that most have ne- never interacted with retailers before. And it really leaves a memorable you know, experience for that customer that they tell others and they come back for. And that's led to a lot of our success. So how do you ensure that the in-store experience is creating, for lack of a better term, the shopping experience that you want now that you've expanded? I think you've got how many showrooms? 19, I read, or or is that number accurate? Yeah, so we actually opened showroom number 21. It's ever expanding. So, you know, we've launched a couple here in the last month. So showroom number 21 in Charlotte launches this Friday. Nice. And then we've got four more showrooms opening in the next couple months that we're really excited about. We just had a press release about that today. And yeah, it's just, it's just a really exciting time in the business. And I I think the one thing that, you you know, people probably don't realize about retail or e-commerce is that you kind of wake up every day and you're at zero, right? The, the, the cash register, so to speak is empty. Mm-hmm. And so we wake up every day, you know, earning every dollar that we can from our customers and really, you know, appreciating that and staying humble around it. Yeah, I, I think the loyalty, or I guess the ability to create loyalty with your model creates that competitive advantage. Have you guys ever thought about taking your model one step further and creating some sort of a subscription program around it? You know, we haven't created a subscription program around our model. We've we've thought about that idea. We've, you know, sort of modeled out different approaches to it. But really, for this type of garment, for the type of garments that we sell, we didn't think that, you know, that was necessarily the best approach, at least at this point. You know, we're we're a pretty big business now. We're we're a business that has high propensities for loyalty to begin with because mm-hmm. we're so focused on experience. You know, over 40% of all of our transactions are a repeat purchase. And that's been consistent, you know, since I joined uh, almost three years ago. And we've really focused on that. And, and I think in any retail or e-commerce business, if you don't figure out, you know, repeat purchase and, and, and how to create, you know, a loyal customer base, you're going to struggle, right? Because you can't just, you know, continue to add customers and continue to, to acquire customers. You've really got to nurture a, a loyal customer base. So I want to ask you, I'll, I'll shift gears into asking you about positioning because I'm, I'm curious to know anecdotally, mm-hmm. it sort of feels like dress codes in the workplace are getting a little bit more casual. Um, at least right. here in North America, you see it, this is, call it the Zuckerberg look. Is this a threat to how you guys are, are positioning yourselves? Yeah, I've heard the word casualization. I don't even know if that's a word, <laughs> but I've heard it, you know, I've heard it through the years. You know, look, I think if you look at suits as one of the 
sort of core products that we sell, there's definitely, it's definitely not a high growth category. You know, there's something around 17 million suits sold a year. That number is fairly static, but it really hasn't been dissipating. It, 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 you know, you need a suit for a wedding, you need a suit for a special event. And what I find, you know, the majority of our customers are millennials. And what I find, you know, amazing and rewarding is that, you know, millennials actually do really like to dress up. And most importantly, they like to create their own brand and create their own garment. And so, you know, we essentially provide them a platform to do that. I think recognizing that, you know, it's our culture and our work culture is not like it was or say like, you know, markets like Japan where, you know, almost every day you're wearing a suit. We are going to be launching other products. So later this year, we will introduce khakis into the mix. We've already sort of, you know, merchandise suit separates. So, you know, wearing a blazer with jeans and things like that. Uh, but we, we will launch khakis. We'll launch uh, different types of dress shirts that are a little bit more casual. And then we're going to get into outerwear later this year, which we're, which we're excited about. Yeah, that's very cool. You mentioned culture, and I want to talk to you about that. The culture page on on the site is, uh, I mean, to me, when I was doing a little bit of research, it really stood out. There's a lot I want to ask you about. The culture in 2015, before you came on board at Indochino, what did it look like then? And what does it look like now? (laughs) So, you know, look, I think uh, businesses are a living, breathing thing, right? You know, nothing is ever perfect, and it becomes what you focus on. And so, you know, I think, frankly, the culture at the company, to a certain extent, had deteriorated quite a mm-hmm. bit for a lot of different reasons. And I don't think it was any one thing or, or one person's fault, but the culture was actually quite shocking. Why do you, you say know, that? When I, when I, well, I just think there wasn't, a, there wasn't a harmonious focus on growing the business. And what I mean by harmonious is that there was a lot of different sort of factions, right? You had people thinking it should be one thing and other people thinking it should be another you know, just disagreements across the board. And so what, you know, the first and foremost, I kind of developed a five-year plan for the business or not kind of, I did. And it really revolved around five P's. And the first P was people Mm -hmm. because you can't have success in any type of business. And I, and I, frankly, I've seen this firsthand if you don't create a culture and if you don't focus on people and a negative culture or a culture that's not strong, you know, will lead to problems down the road. And so we focused a lot on that these past few years. And we were recognized, we were nominated for Culture of the Year last year here in Canada. And that was something that, you know, quite frankly, I was really, really proud of. I don't think, to my original point, companies and cultures and organizations are living, breathing things. And so you got to wake up every day and you got to pay attention to it. And you've got to, you know, really focus on it and, you know, make it a great place to work your question would be, well, what makes it a great place to work? There's a lot of different things, but I think first and foremost, you've got to have a clear vision of what you want to create. uh, And you've got to align uh, people around that vision. And some people aren't going to align around it and you've got to wish them well on their, on their next journey. But you know, that's, that's one of the keys to, to what we did. I also think that, you know, you hire great people and you let them make decisions. You know, you don't try to make decisions in every part of the business every single day. You give people the freedom to succeed and you give people, you know, the freedom to, to sometimes fail, right? And learn. I'm curious about that because I read that you give your employees the opportunity to pitch their ideas to the leaders weekly. And I wonder, how, like, how does that get put into practice on a daily or weekly basis? How does an idea get run up the chain and pitched? So there's different formats for it. I think that, 
along the way, you notice different areas in the business where you need to focus on more. So let me give you an, uh, an actual practical example. So, you know, one of the areas of the business that we really needed to improve upon was our terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, they were leading to uh, sometimes not a great experience for the customer. They were leading to what I'll call financial leakage. And they were leading to some, you know, some pretty challenging gross margin numbers. And so, you know, one of our junior associates at the company had, you know, presented an idea around returns and integrating that idea into our terms and conditions. And that one idea has led to millions of dollars of savings for the company and, and a more clearly defined path for the consumer to interact with the brand. And, you know, that's a person that, you know, frankly, is not part of the leadership team. They're not even part of the management team. Uh, but it was, their, it was their idea and them bringing it forward that allowed it. You know, here's another example. So what I promote, you know, every week, we have what we call game ball once a week where employees are, are get an update, a full update on the business. We celebrate anniversaries. We actually do peer-to-peer recognition and pass a game ball. But we also have an open forum for anonymous questions. And every question I get, I read and I answer. And then I also encourage people to, to ask me out for coffee. And from those coffees, I've probably had, you know, a couple hundred of them. Uh, over the past three years. And from those coffees, new ideas are created. And you also get to hear about the business. I think one of the things that CEOs, one of the mistakes CEOs can make is as you grow, get too far away from people that are actually doing all the things that you need to get done. Um, And you don't hear what their challenges are, what their their successes are necessarily. And I, I, I spend a lot of time, you know, making sure that I understand that. What are some of the most unique anonymous questions you've ever gotten? <laughs> uh, when are we changing the toilet seats in the washroom? <laughs> <laughs> that would be one that was recent and is top of mind. Um, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> that is a good one. That is a good one. You know, we had uh, some really interesting questions around our uh, holiday party format and where we were holding it. And, uh, you know, that changed the, the course of where, where we ended up holding it. Yeah, there's, there's interesting questions, you know, every week. I think the thing that I try to promote is the right approach to asking questions. So early on, sometimes you've got these questions that were just sort of fraught with negativity. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there's also just a style and a way to ask a question. It's kind of substance and style, right? Substance can, can is, is equally as important to the, to the style in which you ask. And so, yeah, it's been an interesting journey as we've, we've had that open forum. I want to go back to something earlier that you said about game balls. So I've sort of read about your love of sports, the, the town halls, the high fives at conferences, et cetera. What is it about sports that, you, that drives so well with building a culture? So, I mean, I've got a, I've got a love of sports. I grew up in a, in a neighborhood that, you know, was fairly, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. And so, you know, my outlet for achievement and my outlet for learning, you know, really became athletics and, I became pretty good, but I, I think the, the one thing that I get got out of it was just, you know, the importance of teamwork, the importance of camaraderie, the importance of working together towards a single goal and just that energy you get from, from winning. Right. And, and winning is not, you know, not by accident. You have to learn how to win and you can also learn how to lose. Right. And so I just have a lot of learnings that, that have come to me through sports. And frankly, I'm a, you know I'm an avid sports fan, and so I enjoy the learnings that you'll see from 
for example, watching the Yankees come together last year and, you know, go from a team that nobody expected anything from to, you know, one win from the World Series. I mean, there's there's just this incredible development that happens in a season or happens in a series. And, and I think there's a lot of learnings that, you know, executives can take from from that forum and transform them over to business. I think for me, when I've, you know, I've probably presented to over 100,000 people now in my career at different events and, and, and conferences. And, you know, I, I, I like getting the, the, the crowd a little bit, you know, excited. I think too often we kind of walk into a room and it's the same thing and, you know, people aren't energized or they're not necessarily ready to participate, but you know, I kind of get in there and I want everybody to stand up and get, give each other a high five and, and, and really get into it. And I, you know, if you try it later today, you give somebody a high five, you feel energized. There's no two ways about it. So. Yeah. So um, I want to go back to something that you said earlier about the upbringing and the lack of money and then your connection to sports. When, when you were young, if you could attribute your entrepreneurial motivation or your motivation that you carry forward as CEO to your upbringing, the lack of money or the sports, what would be the most important factor that, that you could recall as it relates to the way you're operating now? That's a great question. I, I think that, you know, look, I, I grew up with a single parent. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. It was always an issue to sort of get, you know, everything that we needed or wanted. Mm-hmm. And what I kind of learned at that age was that, you know, A, you needed to work hard towards your goals, but B, I didn't want to go without, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of make that decision that you want something or you don't want to go without or you don't want to have the the monthly stress of being overdrawn, which, you know, my mom always had, you need to make that a goal and you need to, to figure out how to achieve that goal. And so for me, that, that drove a lot of my early ambitions. I would say that what I learned though was not, you know, I had to get away from focusing on money to truly be successful and to truly enjoy it. I think when, if, if your only focus becomes you know, building wealth, I think you're going to end up in a spot at some point where it's unfulfilling. And so, and that might sound, that might sound easy to say that, you know, now that we have, you know, what we have, but it's, I I experienced it. It's true. And, you know, what I get most satisfaction out of is the relationships that I'm developing. It's um, seeing other people that I work with successful, uh, seeing my sons, you know, have success, you know, through the time that I spend with them, not just the things that I buy them. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's those things that are truly rewarding. And, and look, at the end of the day, I, and I see this all the time, and I, like I said, I've experienced a little bit of it. You can have all the success in the world, but unless you're happy and truly enjoying what you're doing, life becomes very challenging for a whole number of reasons. So you really have to, you really have to balance that. Yeah, no, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, there's there's so much I want to unpack in, in the belief systems around money and, and chasing money as a key motivator and uh, how that often backfires, you know, just as an, my own personal example. I mean, this podcast is a labor of love. <laughs> it's it's right. not a moneymaker. It gives me an avenue yeah. to explore and have conversations like we're having. So uh, I get where you're coming from. No, I really admire that. And uh, you'd be surprised, man, when you follow your dreams and when you achieve your dreams, you know, the rest of that stuff, quote unquote, you know, money, et cetera, it, it follows you, you know, and I also am a big believer in really believing to achieve and, and, and setting your goals and going after them. And, and if you do, you know, all the good stuff will come to you, but just know what you want. Cause I, I see that too often where people think they know what they want, but 
you know, once they get it, <laughs> they're not really happy with it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, no, a hundred percent because they're, they're chasing dollar signs and they're not chasing fulfillment or what really resonates with their core values. I want to ask you a little bit more about that as CEO. You, you must have to strike kind of a delicate balance between uh, answering to investors and shareholders and pursuing what really excites you and then subsequently pursuing what is going to excite the company culture, right? Can you talk a little bit about that balance beam that you have to stand on every day? Yeah, I think, one, you know, probably 15, I've been a CEO now for eight or nine years. When I was you know, close to 30, I had a mentor that, you know, we spent a ton of time talking about business and goals. And, you know, I think a lot of what he taught me, I incorporate today. But, you know, one of the things I remember him telling me, and I didn't understand it, is he said, you know, look, he, I know you want to be a CEO, but realize it's the loneliest job in the world. <laughs> And I just didn't know what he meant, right? Like, I, I asked him, obviously. I was like, well, what do you mean? He said, he just, it's hard to describe, but it's really, really a lonely job because, you know, you essentially, you, you yes, you have a, a direct report, your board, your shareholders, but, you know, it's really all on you. When there's success, you share it with everyone. When there's challenges or, or you know, things that don't go the way that you think they, or that, that they should have, you know, it's really your fault. And you don't get to have, you know, peer-to-peer conversations like you would in other roles. You know, I think that that's probably run true, but I, I embrace it. You know, I enjoy, I enjoy the balance of, you know, managing great people and, and, and mentoring them and, you know, trying to make them the best that they can be. I enjoy, you know, working with, you know, I've got a fantastic board. We're all very, very different. We look at the world very differently. But we all have a common goal. And, you know, I, I learn from them is, you know, pretty much every time I have an interaction with them. Um, and in this particular journey, you know, with Indochino, I was lucky because when we struck the deal, you know, to move forward, they basically said, look, you know, there's three founders in the business now. There's you and there's me and there's the other shareholder. And we've really, we've really treated Indochino as founders. We've really treated Indochino as partners. And we've enjoyed a lot of success together. Balancing all of that with also shareholder communications and, and, and the like is also, you know, an interesting and sometimes challenging balance. I think the one thing that I take, you know, very, very seriously as a, as a core objective is share price growth. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in the last five years, you know, I've created two companies that have been valued at over $200 million. And those are essentially from, you know, zero starting point. And so I take a lot of pride in that, but that's not by accident, right? I wake up every day, you know, thinking about what's best for the customer, thinking about what's best for my employees, but also thinking about how can I grow share price? You know, what does this business need, you know, to continue to appreciate value? Mm -hmm. And, you know, an example, uh, a practical example is in the last two and a half years, you know, our share price has gone up 20 fold. And, you know, I don't think that that's by accident. So... Do you go through this mental exercise every day on your own? Do you bounce those ideas off your mentor that you were talking about, the board, combination of all of the above? Great question. Uh, I balance it. So, you know, and that's where the loneliness description of CEO mm-hmm. role probably comes in. Mm-hmm. You know, there isn't really one go-to. I think that I'm really fortunate that, you know, my best friend is my wife. You know, we talk about everything. 
including uh, the business. And so she manages our other business, which is home and, you know, investments that we have across the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she's my sounding board, right? And so I share a lot with her, but not everything, right? Because frankly, some of the things that I deal with are very, very stressful. And so I try not to bring some of those things home. You know, I do have a lot of trust in the board that, that I have now and, you know, share a lot with them. But it really depends on what the issue is or what I'm thinking about. I think what you know, for me, what I try to do is funny as this might sound is I try to talk to myself a bit and I work through, you know, whatever, whatever issue or whatever event I might need to, to, to get through. And then I decide who I might share that with to, to get feedback on. But, you know, I, I'm very goal oriented, probably a little bit too much in my earlier uh, career, but I do believe in the power of, of setting goals and then, you know, working towards, you know, achieving them. And, and I do it every day and I do it with my kids. You know, when I drop my kids at school every day for a long, long time, I'd ask them, you know, what are the three things you want to achieve today? You know, mm-hmm. or what are the three things you're going to do? And it'd be, you know, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to listen to my teacher and I'm going to try my best. And those are, those are examples of goals. And, and because they set those goals before they got in the school doors, you know, I, I believe they were better off because they thought about them and they went out and they tried to achieve them. So there's a lot I want to ask you about. Uh, I'll go back to your wife. How many years have you been married? So I'm not a huge uh, advocate of, uh, <laughs> of, of, you know, uh, of getting married. We, we've known each other for, ooh, we've known each other for 25 years. We've been together, um, you know, for about 15, you know, and we got married uh, about six years ago. <laughs> Oh, well, you've been uh, together 25 I, years, so and you've got you've yeah, got kids and a whole family. How do you balance? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the, the I'm leading up to this question I want to ask you, but as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, and all the pressures that you're dealing with on a daily basis, how do you juggle your demands on your on your business life and while preserving the seemingly healthy home life that you have? And what advice would you give to somebody like myself or or another young entrepreneur who is wanting to uh, grow and commit to goals, um, and stay married and have a family. Yeah. So I think I've learned from experience. I didn't know how to do it, frankly, early on. I think I was horrible at it. Um, I think I became, you know, a little bit too obsessed with, you know, building the business that I was building. And here's, here's the truth is that when you, whether you're, you know, an entrepreneur, you're just starting a company, CEO of a, of a small cap or, you know, a, a mid cap, like we are now, you know, you, you are always going to have demands on your time, you know? Mm-hmm. And so early on, I would say yes to everything, <laughs> you know, a shareholder would call up, Hey, do you want to go for drinks or dinner? You know, you end up being out six nights a week. What I've really tried to focus on these last three, four years is, you know, scheduling time to be present with my family. So, you know, tonight, for example, you know, I'm going to have a business meeting up until six thirty. But then I've got two hours at the gym with my boys where we're going to work out together. And during those two hours, I'm not taking calls. I'm not doing email. You know, it's going to take me a little bit of time to to stop thinking about things, but I'm with them. You know, I also, you know, I made the, you just have to make commitments. I made a commitment that I'm going to drop my boys at school, you know, nine out of 10 days. And so when I'm in town, you know, every time I'm in town, I drop them to school. Hmm. And so I think advice would be, you've got to, you know, balance is not a, I think it's an overused word. It's very hard to have balance when you're an entrepreneur or CEO, 
But what you have to do is you have to make commitments. The same type of commitments you make at work, you have to you have to find the time to make commitments to your to your home life. And frankly, do it quickly because if you don't do it, things will suffer. Your relationship with your wife, your relationship with your kids. You know, who wants to go through their their journey or their life and have a ton of success and then not be, you know, best friends with their with their kids or best friends with their wife? I think that would be a, a horrible state to end up in. And, you know, I'm aware that other people have done that and I don't want to do that. So. Yeah, I was going to say that problem is so common. Uh, it's sad, but I mean, it's it's good it's, that you found that balance. It's so easy to do, man. It's so easy. Like, I don't feel like people are at fault. I think it's just... Mm-hmm. You know, you can get into a group. Here's a, here's another practical example. So the NBA, you know, called me up and they said, hey, do you want to come to the All-Star Game weekend? And I said, oh, my gosh, yeah, that'd be that'd be amazing. But I, you know what? I can't come unless I bring my boys. And so I've got a 10 and a 12-year-old. And so they ended up giving us, you know, not only tickets for me, but tickets for my family. And so, you know, that's an example of me sort of pausing for a minute saying, wow, that's that's awesome. I can't do it unless I can bring my family. And it ended up working out where, you know, they came with me. We had a great time. Yes, it was business, but it was also, you know, an unbelievable experience for them. And, uh, you know, you kind of got to set those boundaries as you go through it. Yeah, that's that sounds like an awesome experience. I'm sure your boys love that. <laughs> they have a good time. Yeah, they, they had an awesome time. I mean, they, they play 15, 20 hours a week with their club and and school teams. And you know, so they're huge basketball fanatics and, you know, to sort of see that, that type of event, I'm sure, you know, would inspire them working even harder. So cool. So we'll wrap up. I just want to ask you a couple of last questions and I'll let you go. Are you, are you now based uh, on the West coast in Vancouver? Yeah, I live in, I live in Vancouver a neighborhood called Shaughnessy and our office is down and just off Robson street, uh, Robson and Granville. And so, you know, I love the West Coast. I'm born and bred in, in Toronto, Scarborough. But, you know, we've really, we really love living out here now. So Yeah, how, how long has it been? So about two and a half years since family moved out. Yeah, so what's, what's the, I guess I want to ask you about the transition from the East Coast to the West Coast. What's, the, what's that been like? And what are the obvious pros and cons of, of the West Coast versus the East Coast and vice versa? Wow, that's a good question. I haven't been asked that one. So I, I don't know. Let me take you back to why we, we did this. So sure. I'm a big believer that, you know, the treasure that you truly get out of life is the experiences you have and the journey that you have. And so, for example, my sons have lived in New York. They've lived in Toronto. They've lived in Chicago. They've lived in now Vancouver. And so, you know, I really wanted to give them this experience and I wanted to experience mm-hmm. it myself. You know, my first 18 years, I lived in Scarborough and only Scarborough. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I wanted a different type of life for them to really see the world. And we've done that so far. What I love about the West Coast is actually waking up every morning and having 100 emails in my inbox that the East Coast has been up for three hours. I also love the, the quiet of the night because the East Coast is, is now asleep, right? When you're on the East Coast, you can get emails up until, you know, 12, 1 o'clock because you'll be getting them from East and West. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at 10 o'clock in the West Coast, you know, the East Coast is pretty much shut down. That's, that's just an interesting thing that I've seen the last couple of years that I enjoy in terms of managing my inbox and, and all the communications that I need to manage. 
Good, Drew. Well, look, we're, we're running up on time. This has been a, a great conversation. Congratulations on all of your success with Indochino and beyond. I know that you've got a lofty goal, I think, of something like 1 million suits sold by 2020. Am I right with that? Yeah, we have a goal of a million suits. I don't know if it's going to be by 2020, but you know, we uh, we will hit that goal, and uh, and we're on our way there. You know, this year we'll we'll provide and sell through about uh, half a million garments. So, you know, we're we're pretty excited about not only what we're doing now, but our future. Well, congrats, man! It's uh, it's great. All the best with your future endeavors, and uh, thanks so much for your time in doing this. Yeah, I really appreciate your time, man, and I uh, admire what you're doing, and, and best of luck with everything. Okay. Thanks, Drew. Appreciate it a lot. Okay. You take care. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is sponsored by Scriberbase, experts in subscription e-commerce. Visit Scriberbase.com for more details. Hitsu Socks, artist design socks for everyday life. Amazing designs can be found at HitsuSocks.com. That's H-I-T-S-U Socks.com. And our good friends at Unbound Merino Stylish, simple merino wool apparel that can be worn for weeks without ever needing a wash. More at unboundmerino.com. Your positive support means a lot to us, so if you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electric acid. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.